So welcome back everybody. We're here for the second session of our discussion on the Surat al-Kaf and we are going to complete our evaluation of the alchemical symbolism of the narrative concerning Dhul Qarnain, the possessor of the two horns, Alexander the Great, various individuals have been identified with this uh, mysterious personage, simply referred to as the possessor of the two horns, the two-horned one. And I'm asking Guy now to go into a little bit more analysis and detail regarding iron and copper on the one hand, and the ways in which the alchemical symbolism of those two metals helps us to understand the alchemical marriage between gold and silver. So, over to you, Guy. Well, iron and copper, as Aries Aphrodite, or Venus and Mars, um, refer to this couple, Venus and Mars, on the classic warring couple. So they really um, exemplify the polarity, the attraction of opposites. The alchemical wedding is all about marrying two opposing principles. And in a sense, Venus and Mars never achieve that complete union. They come together, they separate. They come together, they separate. Whereas silver and gold, which more generally in the idea of the chemical wedding and alchemy, symbolize the, the bridal pair, if you like, they are already much closer to a resolved union, um, a matrimony that's going to hold, mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, warring lovers mm -hmm. than Venus and Mars, in as much as silver represents the moon. And in alchemy, it doesn't just represent the moon, there's a direct link between the moon itself and silver itself, just as there is a direct link between gold itself and the sun itself. And maybe one just little example of how that can be seen to actually play out in the material world is in the development of photography. They discovered that using a compound of silver, silver nitrate in photography as a coating on the, on the celluloid, as the medium which would be affected by uh, light provided the range of colors visible in moonlight, which mm. is essentially monochrome, mm. but just up to the edges of ultraviolet, mm. where you just get a little edge of color um, in monochrome, and that's silver nitrate. And of course, then there was a great quest for good color photography. And gold chloride, as in Agfa gold or Kodak, Kodak gold, mm -hmm. um, provides the full spectrum of colors mm -hmm. that are visible in sunlight. So sun, color, gold, moon, monochrome, silver, as above, so below. Mm -hmm. And the moon, of course, shines because it reflects the light of the sun. So 
the moon, silver in relation to the sun, gold, as the couple coming together, they are already, as it were, reflecting each other. The moon is reflecting the sun. There is a potential union because the moon is not in opposition to the sun in terms of refusing to reflect its light. So you can see uh, gold and silver, or the sun and the moon, as a higher reflection on the road to union than um, silver and copper. And you can also see this in the Kabbalistic tree of life, mm -hmm. that um, the spheres representing Venus and Mars are on opposite pillars. Mars on the pillar of severity and Venus on the pillar of mercy. So they are clearly opposites. Whereas the central pillar has the lunar sphere below the solar sphere on the central pillar, mm -hmm. which is the pillar of, um, of union. Mm -hmm. And in relation to the marriage between Venus and Mars, what spiritual significance does that have for one who is doing the work in the alchemical sense, the alchemical work? Well, there is actually a, a work, an alchemical work, that I was taught by my teacher, Manfred, um, Professor Manfred Junius, called the Green Lion. Mm. And the Green Lion is essentially a marriage of Venus and Mars. Mm because it takes um, an iron compound um, and you use um, uh, copper solvents to form a new compound, which is essentially a, um, a green crystal, which is formed out of the marriage of Venus and Mars. And it's a tricky work. The work of the green lion is not easily done. Um, and I failed at it in the past. You have to get everything just right. Um, just as Venus and Mars, although there is this attraction, they are not easy bedfellows. Mm. They, um, they exemplify this idea of join and separate, join and separate, mm. rather than achieving this fixed union. Mm. So the green line is a tricky, is a tricky alchemical um, thing to pull off but it is possible so mm. this union can be achieved. But um, in a sense, on the lower level, we are working with Venus and Mars all the time because men and women are meant to exemplify martial characteristics and ve ve uh, what we used to call venereal characteristics. Um, and of course, there's that famous modern book, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus mm. or the other way around. Mm. So it's an opportunity to um, look at the the balance of things that are, that are at play in the human soul. We have aspects of ourselves which are assertive to the point of maybe aggressive. Anger is associated with Mars. And we have aspects which are more gentle, more caring, associated with Venus, with love. And um, balancing these two things will create something which is neither iron nor copper, but a higher expression, mm. a union of those principles. 
something that binds those two things together and creates of them something higher. And that something higher is, is both crystallized and symbolized by the green lion. Yes. So it's, it, it looks something like a lion, the shape of the crystal. It looks... Uh, no, it doesn't look like a lion at all. It's got nothing to do with the, um, the crystal formation. Hmm. They call it the green lion because it is... Because um, it's green. <laughs> but also, the word lion is used to um, suggest um, an alkahest, something that dissolves a strong solvent. So the green lion is often a reference to vitriol. Mm -hmm. um, and vitriol is, is acid. So you can have a sulfuric acid, you can have a nitric acid. Um, the uh, alchemists experimented with various solvents that could dissolve at metals. And aqua regia, the royal water, was able to dissolve gold and that's depicted as a green lion swallowing the sun. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, why I asked about that is that one of the names of, of Imam Ali is Asad, Asadullah, the Lion of God, and also Haydar. And um, he is one of the great manifestations of the solar hero, the solar principle in Islam. And he's given us this image of the greater holy war, the spiritual struggle within. Um, and he says that the soul is like a battleground. On one side of the soul is the intellect, mm. and on the other side is the is desire, hawa. Mm. And they're fighting it out. Desire in the... In the sorry. So the intellect is the commander of the forces of Ar-Rahman, the all-compassionate, the all-merciful, one of the names that evokes the Venus principle of love. And Hawa, the desire, Krishna, is the commander of the forces of Ash-Shaitan, the devil. So it's very interesting that one of the names of beauty of God, Ar-Rahman, is given as the empowerment of the intellect in its struggle against the false God within the soul, which desire constitutes. And that it's that desire in the soul that opens up the soul to the insinuations of a shaitan. That's why Hawa is called the commander of the forces of the devil within the soul, that is our desire, egotistic, subjective, individualistic desire, that uh, renders our soul susceptible to the insinuations of shaitan. So it, it represents, it's the commander of the forces of shaitan. But when you're talking about how this, the power of Mars and the love of Venus have to come into a marriage, it made me think that the way in which desire can be transformed into mahabba, into love of beauty, of the beauty of God, love of what is good, is uh, affected by the power of the intellect 
activated by a force of love on the higher divine level. So it's, it's a kind of Venus-like principle of Ar-Rahman, of Rahma, that empowers the intellect in its struggle against desire, but it doesn't defeat desire so much as transform it mm. into a force of love that it becomes enlisted on the side of Ar-Rahman. And here it's very important to note that in the Arabic word for uh, Ar-Rahman, um, there's a, a, a strongly authenticated saying in which God speaks in the first person, saying, I have derived my name Ar-Rahman from the Rahim, which is the womb. So the most important name, arguably, after Allah itself is Ar-Rahman. The Quran says, call upon Allah or call upon Ar-Rahman. Whichever name you call upon, unto him belong the most beautiful names. So this most important name after Allah of the divine reality, which evokes and, as it were, describes to the extent that it can be described, the essential nature of the divine reality, it is Rahma. And God says that Rahmati Sabakat Ghadabi, the other names of God, which are wrathful, are subordinated to the names of mercy and love which are given precedence over them. So my mercy takes precedence over my wrath. So Rahma, if you like, has an an ontologically higher status in relation to uh, the names of God that are like Al-Muntaqim, the Avenger, the strong, the mighty. So the way in which the Martian qualities, the the strength of, uh, of Mars, enters into Rahma, and the name Ar-Rahman is also given in quite a strong manner in the Surah Maryam, for example, where you have almost a quarter of all of the, between a quarter and a third of all of the instances of the use of Ar-Rahman are in the Surah Maryam. Mm, Again and again and again, it's Ar-Rahman that is referred to. the, The Virgin says, uh, when she sees this perfectly formed human being and she's frightened and she says uh, I seek refuge in Ar-Rahman from you fear God if you are a God-fearing person and again and again and again instead of referring to Allah it's Ar-Rahman that's indicated in this surah called Mary which is all about how from this blessed womb, Rahim, the Word of God emerged, the Word of God made flesh. So I wonder if that triggers any kind of alchemical correspondences, that the intellect needs to be empowered by Rahma, by God as the all-compassionate and the all-merciful, but also, as I said, love is very heavily implicit in this concept of Rahma. It's not just forgiveness and compassion and mercy. Um, the root of the word, and this is indicated among other things by uh, an instance in the life of the prophet when he saw, very appropriately, he saw a woman who was running, looking for her lost baby in the melee at the fall of, of Mecca. It was a peaceful conquest of Mecca, but in the chaos, a mother was separated from her baby, um, a suckling babe, 
and she was crying, looking for the baby, and she found the baby right in front of the Prophet and some of his companions, and she clutched the baby and took it to her breast, and it, with this very maternal scene in the midst of, of quite a chaotic situation, the Prophet turns to his companions and says, do you see how much rahma this woman has for her child? And they all marveled at it, and he said, yes, yeah, O oh, oh, Messenger of God. And he said, well, God has more Rahmah for you on the Day of Judgment than this woman has for her baby. So the Prophet was given a very maternal example of what we are entitled to expect on the Day of Judgment if we have been righteous. That God's Rahmah that's given to us, His mercy and His forgiveness, His compassion, is identified with the Rahmah of a woman who is reunited with her newborn babe. Mm. So it evokes a love which implies compassion and mercy, but the accent is on the love rather than on the compassion and the mercy, that the mother's relationship with her newborn babe is an all-embracing, organic love from which comes mercy, compassion and gentleness. So the Prophet was teaching us the meaning of Rahmah by saying it's fundamentally love which will overflow in the form of compassion and mercy and forgiveness on the Day of Judgment, but the relationship that God has to us is akin to the relationship that a, a mother has with her newborn babe. Mm. Unreserved, unconditional, all-embracing, organic love. Mm. So it's the love of Ar-Rahman that empowers the intellect in its struggle, its Martian-like struggle against desire, which is love poisoned and corrupted in the soul, directed towards evil ends, because it's open to, by virtue of its subjectivism, individualism, egotism, it's open to the insinuations of shaitan that says, well, you should love and desire this, that, and the other for yourself. The classic example is, you know, is, is, is what Ramakrishna called gold and women. It's wealth and, and lust. So uh, that's probably a good place to stop this session. Guy, thank you very, very much. And in the next session, we'll resume going backwards to the previous narrative, which is arguably the most esoteric uh, discourse, let's say, in the Quran which is the encounter between Moses and Al-Khidr, the green man. And I should just remind our viewers um, that Al-Khidr is not actually mentioned as such in this surah. It's, uh, he's just referred to as a slave to whom God had given knowledge and, and mercy. But in the tradition, when asked who is this person that had such great spiritual knowledge that he could teach Moses that of which he had no knowledge. Uh, the Prophet replied by saying he is Al-Khidr, the, the, the green one, the green man. So our next two sessions will be focusing on the encounter between Moses and Al-Khidr. Thank you very much. Thank you.